0: Hello, and welcome to The Second Location. I'm your host, Holly, and in this episode, I am continuing our discussion of the 1991 murders of Amy Ayers, Eliza Thomas, and Jennifer and Sarah Harbison. Now it's 1996, and after five years, the case has gone cold. But there is a new lead investigator, Paul Johnson, and he has focused the investigation on suspects that had been cleared back in 1991. These suspects that are once again on the police's radar are Maurice Pierce, Robert Springsteen, Mike Scott, and Forrest Melbourne. Now first, I want to talk about how these four teenagers first became involved in this case. The four were friends that often skipped school together to get high and or drunk. And let me just say this. While the four victims in this case were just about ideal kids, they were future model citizens. The four boys that were accused of murdering the girls were nothing like the girls. But of course, that doesn't mean that they are murderers, just that they're shitheads. But anyway, it's eight days after the murders, and Maurice Pierce had been found at the local mall carrying a twenty two. Now, he was spotted by an off duty police officer that was working as a security guard. Now, remember that Maurice having a twenty two was important because all of the girls were shot that night with a 22 caliber gun. And when the first shot did not kill Amy, she was also shot with a 380 caliber weapon. So, 16-year-old Maurice seems like he was the ringleader of this little group of misfits. Perhaps because he had access to his father's car, so he could drive everyone around. You know, teenagers always like the kid with the car. With Maurice that night at the mall, when he was caught with a gun, was a 15-year-old. His name's Forrest Bellburn. Forrest, he really looked up to Maurice, which is really really sad because of the shit that maurice pulls on him suffice to say at this point i'm just gonna put it this way maurice was not a good friend when word that a teenager was arrested for possession of a 22 caliber handgun at the mall reached detective hector polanco basically he's the king of confessions in austin but he might also be the king of wrongful confessions in austin anyway he brought the boys in for questioning and by the next morning maurice had told polanco that the 22 had been used to kill the girls at the yogurt shop and that it might have been Forrest who committed the murders. Like I said, Maurice was not a good friend or a good person, because it seems like he completely made this story up about Forrest having the gun that night. And the wrongful convictions all start with Maurice being dumb at the mall, and when he is in trouble, he tries to implicate his best friend in a murder to save his own ass. Now, here's the story that Maurice told in that first police interview. And it's a little over a week after the murders. The night of the murders, Maurice says that he is at a place called The Fungus with a group of skinheads that had a leader named Mace. What the hell is the fungus, you might ask? And I would answer that I have no idea. I tried to look it up and found nothing. But it sounds gross. And skinheads hang out there, so I would just avoid it. But it seems like a kind of place where a bunch of the young assholes would hang out together. Maybe, you know, smoke, drink, and just fool around while they're, you know, wasting their lives. While waiting for their moms to come pick them up. But personally to me, all of this mace and the fungus talk sounds like it was ripped from an extra special episode of Family Ties about, you know, Mallory getting date-raped at a skate park. But nonetheless, the police are interested in what Maurice has to say. But anyway, so we're all hanging out with this fungus, and Maurice says that Forrest borrowed the 22 from him and went off with a few of the skinheads. According to Maurice, when Forrest returned, six bullets were missing from the gun. Forrest smelled of hairspray, And Forrest had a scratch on his neck. Right about now, it would be nice if the bodies had been tested for traces of accelerant. Because it sounds like Maurice is trying to claim that Forrest used hairspray to start the fire at the yogurt shop. But there is more to Maurice's story. He says that Forrest told him that he had done something bad and he wanted to do it again. That he wanted to kill more girls. Now, during his interrogation, Maurice also stated that earlier in the evening, after he had been babysitting for his sister's kids, he had hung out with Rob Springsteen and Mike Scott. Springsteen and Scott were immediately picked up by the police. Honest to God, I don't care if he is your brother. I don't really think I would want Maurice babysitting my kids. I'm just thinking of this teenager that carries a gun to the mall. Like, that's his type of thinking. I wouldn't trust him with children. But anyway, keep in mind that all these interrogations, are taking place just eight days after the murder. Now, there were obvious holes in the story. First of all, no one on the police force, no one, had ever heard of a skinhead named Mace. Also, this Mace, once they hear of him, they can never track this guy down. So, sounds like he might be made up, right? Maurice also claimed that a twenty two was kept hidden in the fungus for general use, you know, by all the hooligans. The police searched and never found this gun. But before we go further into this confession and what all it leads to, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about these four teenagers, these four boys, because the whole future of this investigation and where the case stands today is really tied up with these guys. Now, like I said, Maurice Pierce seemed to be the ringleader of the group of boys. He's the one that takes the gun to the mall, tucked into the waistband of his pants to show off a bit. That little bit of teenage stupidity really ruined some lives and while none of the boys I mean they were all skipping school and drinking and just you know I don't know how to put them they were just like if you found out your daughter was dating one of them or your son was gonna start hanging out with that group you'd be like oh god no you know what I mean you don't want this but anyway, he was really, of the four boys, he was the only one to have a, any real criminal record of any import. I mean, he had been arrested for stealing a fire extinguisher, and twice he was accused of unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. Now, one of the car complaints against him was made by his father when Maurice took his father's car to Houston without his dad's permission. Now, Maurice had returned the car, but he didn't have permission to take the car in the first place. And Maurice's dad did what any good father would do and reported his son to the police. For car theft. Just checking to see if you were listening. Of course you don't report your kid to the police for taking your car without your permission. You take care of that type of bullshit in-house. It's called parenting. You do it. In our state, where I live, the police wouldn't even write that up. I mean, the car was returned, and the kid was allowed access to the car frequently, so this is not a police issue. This is a parental issue. Anyway, Maurice had also been suspended from school for fighting and having a knife. So Maurice is really just going for it. You know, just consistent bad decision making. He had faced charges of criminal trespass twice, And once for assault. To me, it looks like he wants attention and he wants to seem tough. And he's the type of person that's not really worthy of attention. So the only way he's going to get it is by acting like a fool. Now, I know this type of kid. They're not necessarily bad. They just lack direction and they aren't getting what they want in life and have no one to show them how to get where they want to be in a positive way. But also, I want to say I really super dislike Maurice because he caused all this shit to rain down on his friends and he was just such an ass to Forrest who absolutely idolized him. Now, another one of the boys, it's Robert burns springsteen the fourth now he had been living in austin for only about four months before the murders he had been living with his mother and grandparents in west virginia when he asked his father if he could move to austin to stay with him for a while his father agreed and robert moved into the other half of two condos that were owned by his father's girlfriend he's a little bit of a misfit and so were the other boys really but he also had a bit of a temper and oddly enough a sense of entitlement but i question this assessment i just think he is proud And a little misunderstood. I just think that people keep saying a sense of entitlement in him. And I don't know that I see that. I just see somebody that has a hint of a maybe artistic flair. Somebody that wants to stand out. Doesn't know how. I mean, he seems like the type of kid that would wear a top hat to school. You know what I mean? Look at me. Also, it doesn't help that Rob suffered from resting bitch face. You know, much like breast cancer, it can attack men as well as women. But he just looks so damn smug that I think it's really off-putting to people. So maybe people were attributing Rob as being entitled based just partly on his appearance. But anyway, Rob was sent to an alternative learning school in West Virginia. Now, at this school, counselors noted his style of dress that they felt was, you know, aimed at getting attention. He wore a Nehru jacket or a bandana on his head. And I will say, this is in the 90s when Nehru jackets had a weird, odd resurgence. I mean, I personally think they've always looked like shit. And, but even I had a few in the 90s and I didn't even like them. But I was like, I like this blazer so much. Why does it have such an ugly collar? But anyway, am I the only one that thinks this is just laughable? You know, the way they're making a big deal about how this kid's dressing. He wore a Nehru jacket and a bandana. So that means he is proud. <laughs> that means he has a sense of entitlement. I just think it's a... It's just like, you know, bitchy, unfashionable teachers looking to stir shit. To me, it seems like he just wanted attention, like most teenagers. And he tried to get noticed by dressing in an unconventional manner. Anyway, like, we you're in an alternative school, and the biggest gripe they have about you is that you dress oddly. I mean, do you even need to bother complaining about the kid? I don't think so. It's a fashion report. It's all an alternative school. Jeez. Anyway, Rob moves to Austin. He's given more leeway by his father than he had back in West Virginia. I mean, he has his own condo next to his dad's. And I think more leeway is probably not what Rob needed right now. But anyway, he's registered for high school in Austin. And he went out for the football team, but got into an argument with a coach early on and quit the team. Then he got into an argument at McDonald's, and he threw a knife. Now, his school counselors wanted to send him to an alternative school in Austin, but because he was a new student, the principal cut him some slack and gave him a second chance at the high school. But Rob just couldn't follow the guidelines laid out for him, and he was eventually sent to an alternative learning school. Now, he frequently skipped school, and he had incredibly, incredibly irregular attendance. And I think that's kind of true for all of these kids, really. Now, in late late November 1991... Mike Scott moved into the condo with Rob. And there was one condition that Rob's dad's girlfriend, now she's the owner of the condos, she imposed one condition, that if the boys quit school, they had to get a job. I don't know even what to say about that. I don't know. Because I know teenagers can be tough. But I really would like a condition where quitting school isn't an option. But I don't know. I just, I mean, I do think education in some ways is overemphasized with people going to college for, to get jobs that I don't think you needed a college education for. But in another way, I think kids should finish high school. You know, it just helps society in general. So the boys' attendance at school was sporadic at best. But neither of them get jobs, even though their attendance school was so rare that they might as well have dropped out. They weren't there. The parts that I don't really understand is that Rob's dad was a computer programmer who was between jobs. But he didn't seem to notice that the boys were not attending school. And he lived next door. Um... Quick parenting critique, I have never raised teenagers, but I can understand Rob's dad giving him space to make decisions on his own. But I think once one of those decisions was drawing a knife at a McDonald's and skipping school so much that he was kicked out of high school, he had to go to a a different type of school, an alternative school. At that point, you let him make decisions on his own. We now all see that he is making terrible decisions, and we need to just tighten those parental reins a little bit more. Of course, I also understand that is easier said than done sometimes. But maybe before he gave Rob all this space on his own, because it's hard to walk back things you give kids. Once you give them that much rope, it's hard to tug-of-war them back in. So maybe when he first moves there, you don't give him all this freedom until you know this kid a little bit better. Now, oddly enough, Rob's dad did report Rob as a runaway on the morning of December 6, 1991. And you'll remember, that's the day of the murders. Rob was confused by this, When he found out about it, as he had not run away, and while his dad may not have known where he was, his father rarely knew where his son was. And I also, I just don't get this either. Why report him missing now? He seems to never have tabs on this kid. I mean, he doesn't know whether he is in school or not. You know it's very confusing it's something that's never really cleared up because when rob's dad takes the stand in rob's trail he has no recollection of ever making the call to report rob missing of ever having done that let alone on december 6th he doesn't remember ever reporting rob as a runaway which makes me wonder did he make that report that rob was missing on december 6th i mean rob was surprised by it and his dad didn't remember doing it was it something that could have been falsified I really have no idea, and I really don't even know what the point would be of falsifying that. But it's hinky, right? I mean, could you, honest to God, forget the fact that you had reported your son missing to the police? I would never forget that. I don't care if he's found later that day or not. I would remember doing that. Mother of the year! Okay. Like I said, that December 6th, the day that Rob was reported missing... It's the day of the murders, so anything reported on that day, you know, it comes under suspicion. Now, like I said, even when he's shown the report on the witness stand, his dad says he still doesn't remember making it. And when Rob was asked about the missing persons report in 2010 by Beverly Lowry, author of Who Killed These Girls, which is a main source for these episodes, he responded that he didn't get along with his dad, and that he could have been on a friend's couch. He just couldn't recall at this point. And I get that. It's 19 years later. How the hell could he remember? I mean, these boys didn't become suspects for five years. It was hard to recall where you were on a random day five years ago. But if he had committed the murders, I bet he would be able to vividly recall the details of that day because it would have been more memorable. I do think, oddly enough, Maurice getting stopped eight days after the murders with that gun at the mall, if that, well, first off, if that hadn't happened then these boys had never become under suspicion at all, but if that hadn't happened and they weren't questioned those, you know, eight, nine days after the murders... I don't think they would have any recall at all about what they had done that day. The only information I think that was able to survive about what their alibi was and their details of that night was because they were questioned, you know, about a week after the murders. If it had been waited to be like, you know, the years later when they were actually arrested, I don't think they would have been able to come up with anything. And I will say, I think sometimes these guys, these suspects, like they're hard to pin down. Um, like Um It's hard to get, not necessarily a straight answer, but it's like an answer that makes sense and is maybe the answer to the question you're asking. Sometimes they seem to be answering a question that wasn't asked, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to figure things out from them. It really is. But that doesn't mean that they aren't telling the truth or they're being purposefully evasive. I just think it might be their personalities are just kind of combative. Or just as they don't really recall the events of this time period because they had nothing to do with the murders. These kids are smoking pot and drinking as teenagers. So that could also impact their memory. Also, part of the problem is that these four guys aren't really on, like I said, they're not on the police's radar as main suspects until eight years after the murders. How the hell do you remember where you were on a random day years ago? It's just, it's just tricky. Okay, the next boy that we will talk about, he's Mike Scott. He's Rob's housemate. Mike was born in Micronesia. Which I had no idea where it was. I had to look it up. It's in a region of Polynesia in the Philippines in the Pacific Ocean. It's funny how you hear something like Micronesia all your life, but you don't know where the heck it is. Okay, maybe you guys know where it is. I honestly didn't. Anyway, Mike moved frequently when he was growing up because his dad was in the military. But he had pretty severe dyslexia and school was a real struggle. And I mean, I don't blame his dad. His dad's in the military. But I would think, with having a very difficult case of dyslexia and frequently changing schools, that would not be a great combo. Now, he was on the football team in his freshman year of high school. Participated in high school drama productions, and he played the viola. My husband plays that. It's an odd instrument, not an odd instrument. It's an unusual instrument, I'll say. At least where I'm from, we had band. We didn't have symphony. Do you know why? Cause we weren't fancy. Anyway, Mike is a Boy Scout, and he became a Life Scout at age 16, which is a really big achievement. I think it's the step lower than Eagle Scout. I don't know, I was never a Boy Scout, but um, it is a big achievement, and Boy Scouts, they can, like, they learn amazing stuff. And it's, like, a really cool organization if you, you know, don't get molested. Anyway, Mike was a lot more socially involved than the other boys. And he was generally a well-liked kid. Which I get the feeling that the other guys, you know, like Maurice and Rob and... Well, I think people could have liked Forrest. I don't get the feeling that Maurice and Rob were well-liked. But Mike was. He's the kind of kid that wants to please people. But he just has a hard time. I think it's the dyslexia trips him up. And it's, uh... He's in with the wrong group of kids. Now, like I said, he's more socially active at school and just in life in general. I mean, he participates in several activities like sports and and artistic stuff like drama and music. He just seems like less of an outsider than the other guys. But that dyslexia, it really holds him back academically. When he was a sophomore, his parents divorced and his mother struggled with some what's described as emotional disorders and he quit all of the groups that he belonged to other than the Boy Scouts. And he had to repeat his sophomore year and he started cutting school a lot. He was described as a follower by his classmates which is sad because out of all this group of boys he should have been the leader But then again, he had dyslexia instead of a car. So that wasn't helping him out. It's sad because if he had been in another group and he'd been a follower, it wouldn't have caused him all these problems in life. He just was a follower in the wrong group. Like I said, he dropped out of all his other activities except for scouts. And he was part of a group of explorer scouts that were researching pre-1940 Native Americans. He made his own Native American style pants from leather that he tanned himself. I think that is so cool. I think that's so cool. Tanning your own leather. That is so neat. Like I have a cousin that does taxidermy and I think that's like amazingly interesting and yet still amazingly gross. But Mike, he just seems like he kind of spiraled when his parents divorced. And I think that happens more often than what people like to think. And there's this whole, well, my parents divorced and I was fine mentally, but each person is an individual and we all have our own unique reactions in our lives to events that happen. It doesn't diminish anyone else when someone struggles or someone else succeeds. Take people as they are. We are not all the same. Don't expect everyone to react the way you do. They are not you. Also, I think when I said his mother was described as having emotional disorders after the divorce, I think that would have really impacted how this teen reacts to the divorce himself. Because if his mother's struggling, I think he's much more likely to struggle as well. I mean, he's allowed to move in with Rob, who is another, like, not getting shit done kind of kid. Like, obviously, no one's trying to help this guy. He doesn't need to be living with his teenage friend, okay? He needs to be living with mom or dad. Now, when he moves in with Rob, he just seems aimless. Just, you know, almost just, like, waiting for something to happen. They spend a lot of time smoking pot, drinking beer, and consuming mushrooms. And, um, mushroom consumption seemed to be a strange source of pride for Mike. I mean, I kind of get it. That guy that eats a Big Mac every day, he feels that's an achievement. But I drink almost two liters of Coca-Cola every day. And I find that to be a source of embarrassment and shame. But to each his own. But I just don't know if it would be like, yeah, I'm Mushroom King. He referred to himself as the Mushroom King because he consumed mushrooms. Not because he sold a lot or anything like that. Oh, I feel bad. This kid didn't have, he I was going to say he didn't have sources of pride. But he had actual things he should be proud of. And mushroom consumption should not have been it. This is damn pants he made for himself. Ugh. Anyway, Mike's recall of December 6th is a little more solid than Rob's. Now, he says they woke up and got high, made a couple of phone calls, smoked pot by the pole, then rode the city bus to McCallum. There was a girl there that Mike was interested in, and they went to high school where the kids gathered for lunch so Mike could see her. Oh, my God, Mike, Mike, just go to high school yourself. Just go to class. Then we don't have to pop in during lunch. Now, the fourth boy in this little band of teenage misfits is Forrest Bellborn. Now, he's quiet but artistic, and he plays the upright bass in the school orchestra, and he daydreamed during class, often drawing detailed pictures in his notebook instead of paying attention. With divorced parents, he switched households often, going between his mom's and his dad's places and the associated step parents. At the time of the murders, he was living with his father in Austin. Forrest, he really seems to look up to Maurice, and he kind of tags around with Maurice as like a shadow, he goes with Maurice. To most of the places Maurice goes, Forrest follows. So that's the four suspects. Two of them will be convicted of the murders of the girls, but they will be released from prison when the DNA from the rape kits don't match any of these suspects. So it's nine days after the murders, when the police are first questioning Maurice about the handgun that he had with him at the mall. Now, Maurice tells the story about letting Forrest use the gun, And Maurice also lets loose with a story about how he and Forrest stole a Nissan Pathfinder from a car lot, like a sales lot, and went for a jewelry ride after picking up Rob and Mike. The foursome stopped by a gas station. Maurice went in and bought a drink and the newspaper while Mike pumped the gas. Mike drops the pump and the group drove off without paying for the gas. But the attendant got the license plate number and called the police. The report was incorrectly logged as being Saturday morning, the morning after the murders, but it was actually Sunday morning. And they'll be able to tell this because the, the owner of the car lot, they know when that car went missing. So the group drove to San Antonio so Mike could break up with a girl. I know. I just want to say, like, I do not think any of these guys had anything to do with the murders of these girls. But you could see how they are making decisions that are just about the worst, you know, but I just don't think that, I mean, the DNA doesn't match to these young men. And also I don't think the murder of these girls, I don't think this was a young person's crime. I think it was a little bit too sophisticated with the fire. That's where I get sophisticated. Okay. But anyway, so, but I'm just saying like to juxtapose how sweet these girls are and what good kids they are and the type of, consistently foolish and reckless decisions that these guys are making that are basically, you know, their peers, a little bit older than the girls, than some, you know, some of the girls, but, you know, general same age range, except for, you know, Amy, but it's just a world of difference between the group of girls and this group of guys that are going to be convicted for killing them, you know, wrongly convicted, but anyway, you can see they're just, just reckless, okay? I mean, they're stealing cars from car lots. Not paying for gas. I guess that's a lot less of a thing, huh? Not paying for gas. I'm stealing gas, and this is all so Mike can go break up with a girl. Okay, after a flat tire, they get there after nine in the morning. Mike went on a walk with the girl while the others waited in the car, reading the article about the yogurt shop murders aloud. Back to Austin, they went, and as the car lot was now open, they parked their vehicle in a remote part of the lot and left. As a result of this story, Austin police charged Maurice with unauthorized use of of a motor vehicle and you might ask yourself why the hell did he volunteer that story about stealing the car? I just cannot understand these guys. I think they have no sense of self preservation in an intelligent way. I think Maurice is panicking about having a gun and they're questioning him about the murders. So I don't know if he's doing the, if I confess to something that's lesser, they'll think I'm being honest when I say I didn't kill the girls. I don't know where this guy's head is. It's hard to get into their minds because it's an odd place in there. Here's the thing that bothers me about this, about confessing to the car, stealing the Nissan. No one had connected him to the stolen car. Like, why admit to it? And that's what I'm saying is I think the crimes are too sophisticated for these guys because I just don't think they would ever have thought about setting fire to destroy evidence. It's just beyond them. Think about it this way. These four young men that will become suspects, they initially get a little bit on the police's radar with Rob's dad reporting Rob missing on Friday morning. You know, it's the morning of the night the girls were murdered. And early Sunday morning, there was the joy ride. Then Maurice acting like a big shot with a gun at the mall gets himself questioned by the police about where he was on the Friday night that the girls were killed and Maurice actually points the finger at his good friend Forrest for the murders and then Maurice confesses about himself doing the joyriding. Now, why the hell... Did he do that to Forrest? This is what really bothers me. And so it's why it's very difficult sometimes to sympathize with these guys. And I do have sympathy for them because some of them were wrongly jailed. But I don't have a lot of sympathy for Maurice because this all started with them being implicated in these murders that they didn't commit because he was big shot in a mall with a gun. And then when police questioned him about what the hell he's doing with a gun and it's the same caliber of a gun that was used to kill the girls... He implicates his best friend in a murder that he knows his friend did not commit. I can't with this guy. It's it's too much for me, okay? I, I do not like Maurice Pierce, okay? But I also don't think he's guilty of the murders. I just, he's not a good person, in my opinion. I mean, why the hell did he do that to Forrest? I mean, I disagree with how the police conduct themselves in this investigation. But what the hell went on in that first interview of Maurice's that he blames probably his best friend, For the murder that he knows his friend didn't commit because they were together that night. And if Maurice didn't commit the murder, then he knows Forrest didn't commit the murder. Is this just the type of shit that he thinks is funny? Or does he think it will look cool to be linked to the case? It's just weird and it does not reflect well on Maurice in my opinion. Except that we do know that it was Hector Polanco that conducted the first interview with Maurice and Hector is known to use questionable tactics to further an interrogation. This guy was really good at getting innocent people to confess. Seriously, he is noted for it. There is no recording of this 1991 police interview with Maurice Pierce, so we have really no idea what actually occurred. But I will say, while Hector usually gets people to falsely confess, that's one of his big things, Maurice here is falsely implicating his best friend. It's something incredibly disloyal, dishonorable, and just disgusting. He's got all the disses. And this shit he pulled on Forrest. Okay, so let's talk about Hector Polanco. Hector Polanco was an investigator on the case. And like I said, he was very adept at obtaining confessions. Apparently, he got two people to confess separately to the yogurt shop murders. But other police officers intervened when it became apparent that the men were not guilty. I mean, one guy confessed hoping that his family could get the reward money to help his brother who was dying of AIDS. This guy didn't know anything about the crimes. It was very obvious when other investigators talked to this man that he didn't know the details of the murders. And Hector would eventually be fired from the police department, but he sued alleging racism and was reinstated and given back pay and promoted over the years. eventually, Hector retires with full benefits. Now, Hector's importance to this case is peripheral. He was not involved in the later investigation of the four men. But he was the officer that first questioned Maurice Pierce eight days after the murders. Now, when these guys come back on the police's radar, like I can't remember if it was eight, nine years later, Hector's not involved with the case at all at this point. He's limited just to that first interrogation time period. And this is something funny that um, the lead investigator of the case, Jones, had said that if Hector Polanco couldn't get Maurice Pierce to confess, then Maurice didn't have anything to do with the crime because Hector got confessions, you know, out of everybody more or less is the point. But remember that while Maurice wouldn't confess, he was very comfortable with implicating Forrest, his best friend. So Maurice, he agrees to wear a wire and try to extract a confession out of Forrest and Elsa, Maurice's dad, is consulted about this and he agrees to the situation too. Because remember, Maurice is a juvenile. The resulting conversation took place in Maurice's car outside of a laundromat. And honestly, to me, Forrest seemed just plain confused. Now, I'm going to quote from the exchange between the two. Maurice, what did you actually do that night? That Friday. Forrest, pardon? Maurice, that Friday when the girls were dead. Forrest, huh? Maurice, you said you wanted to use a gun. Forrest? When I wanted to use a gun? I mean, it's just general confusion from Forrest. He sounds like he has no idea what the hell Maurice is talking about. So Maurice comes on a little stronger. Maurice says, You said that you wanted to use the gun, and that you had killed the girls. Now, at this point, Forrest claims that he was just goofing, and here Maurice starts to lose his cool. Don't play that game, Forrest. Don't jack with me. Forrest doesn't seem to understand why Maurice is getting so mad. But here's what I think it is. I think unlike a lot of people that falsely confess, and it's out of a moment of panic, and they want this to end, and they think they'll be able to exonerate themselves later, I think Maurice is also having that moment of panic. But he is so self-centered that he's not going to put himself in harm's way. He's doing it to Forrest. And Maurice is desperate, and it's for a good reason. He's very, very fearful, it looks like, after this interrogation by Hector Polanco. There is absolutely no justification for saying your friend murdered four teenage girls when you know that's not the case. But I'm just saying, I think that's where this is coming from. It's now 6 p.m. and Maurice had spent almost the entire day with the police. In the car with Forrest, Maurice starts to cry, saying, You know I ain't got the guts to kill them girls. And he explains to Forrest that the police had his gun. Maurice was afraid he was going to go down for the murders. Forrest said that he was afraid, too. The conversation ended. Maurice drove Forrest home. Now, Sergeant John Jones dismissed Maurice as a legitimate suspect because Maurice asked to take a lie detector test and actually took one. Maurice permitted the police to search his home, and no evidence connecting him to the murders was uncovered. He had agreed to wear a wire while talking to Forrest, and Forrest seemed to have no idea what the hell Maurice was talking about. And that lie detector test Maurice took? He passed, and most importantly, the twenty two that Maurice was caught with at the mall underwent ballistic testing, and the gun did not match the bullets from the crime scene. And this testing is done back then, back in the you know, time period in 1991 when the murders took place and when they found Maurice at the mall with a gun eight days later. The gun is tested back in 1991 and they know then that it is not the gun used to kill the girls. Now keep in mind because three of these guys are going to be indicted for murder about nine years after the girls were killed. The police considered the wiring interview between Maurice and Forrest a failure and lead investigator John Jones inactivated the four boys as suspects. Their names were filed away only to be retrieved later when there was the new lead investigator on the case, Paul Johnson. Now, the boys, they drift apart and go their separate ways. I mean, it's eight, nine years later. They're no longer in contact. Somewhat predictably, Maurice trying to implicate Forrest in a quadruple murder that he did not commit permanently damaged their friendship. Yeah. Yeah, that's the type of shit that would. Now, I do want to talk about, like, why it's so important that Hector Polanco was ever involved in this case, even in a minor capacity. And I also... I'm a little hard on Maurice there about him implicating his friend because I dick move. But I do want to say there are people that when they are backed into a corner and frightened, they do things that are very short-sighted to end that situation. And... He has to take a lie detector test. He was hopeful that would clear him. But it's not good thinking because when you pass it, they, half the time the police just say you're lying and you're able to pass it because you're psychotic. And if you fail it, then they use it against you. It's like, if you you pass it, it doesn't help you. And if you fail it, it does you know, of course it doesn't help you. But anyway, why I want to talk about Hector Polanco is because we get to talk a little bit about false confessions starting with his career and also because there's going to be false confessions that come out later in the murder of the four girls and i just think false confessions is something that is so incredibly hard for people to understand and it's important to understand that while i might not do that you might not do that there are people that falsely confess and it's because they just want that moment to end and um I think that's what Maurice was doing when he said Forrest was involved. He wanted out of that room. He wanted the focus off of him, and he found a way to do it. And I just well, it just it makes my skin crawl to be honest with you. Now, Hector Palanco, he just epitomizes everything I hate about the police. And I get the feeling that he thinks he is suave. And he tries to appeal to the ladies and the juries, and I just think that is so gross. Smarminess is just the worst. But I hate that when people just think they're like I mean, to use, I don't know, like, that's what they say, like, he tried, I don't find the man attractive in any capacity, but they're like, oh, ladies seem to love him. I'm like, oh my god, I find him so repugnant. But it's because I don't like him as a human being, primarily, but it's just, um, I don't know, there's just, there is no place during a trial for sex appeal, people, okay? (laughs) Ugh. Okay. Now, he... There's a grossness about Hector, but he was absolutely loved by the higher-ups, because Hector had a clearance rate of 100%, and let's just let that sink in. That means he solved every single case that he was assigned. Homicide hunter Joe Kenda had a clearance rate of 92, which is phenomenal. Joe Kenda is an amazing detective and a thoughtful man, and that clearance rate is the result of a bright mind, clear thinking, and hard work. But a hundred percent clearance rate reeks of a conviction no matter what attitude, you know, regardless of guilt or innocence, no one gets it right all of the time. So with that 100% clearance rate, there are bound to be some innocent people in there. And I just rather have, you know, that lower clearance rate and less innocent people in jail for murder and, you know, killers let to roam free to kill again. But that's just me. It just appalls me that people could see a 100% clearance rate and think that that's a good thing and not question it. Anyway, the other thing that should bother people about his method of obtaining confessions is how he used his heritage to his advantage when dealing with people that were from Mexico. I hate that. I'm your brother bullshit. I don't care about race or nationality. If you are a suspect of a crime, there is no kindred spirit between you and the police. Do not be fooled. Covert racism really bothers me, but I'll let it go. But just keep that in mind. But just because the person is questioning you, is acting like they're your friend. Or you have something in common they are never your friend now right here is where i plan to go into hector polanco a little deeper and examine the most famous false confession he ever obtained that's the confession of chris ochawa who falsely confessed to the rape and murder of nancy de Priest. when chris confessed he implicated his friend richard danzinger in the murder as well now richard never confessed but both men were convicted and would spend over a decade in jail for a crime they didn't commit. And the entire time, Richard Danzinger proclaimed his innocence and had an alibi. But still, he was convicted right along with Chris. But I'm going to do a separate episode on the murder of Nancy DePriest and the wrongful convictions of Richard and Chris because I always hear this case brought up in connection with the yogurt shop murders. And all three, Nancy, Chris, and Richard, they really deserve their own attention. The murder of Nancy DePriest is often treated as a side note to the story of the yogurt shop murders. And Nancy's death and her story is much more than a side note. So after the conclusion of the yogurt shop series, the next episode will cover Nancy's case. Okay, we're going to go back to the yogurt shop murders. It's 1997. And with Paul Johnson heading up the case, he goes back to the old files and he starts looking at old leads. And he sees the information about Maurice being stopped at the mall with a 22, just eight days after the murders. He sees his lie detector test and how he implicated Forrest Melbourne. Now, the police decide to arrange an interview with Maurice, who is now married with a five-year-old daughter. During this later interview, he still talks about Forrest barring the 22, but he recalls them being at an arcade and not the fungus. He recalled that he thought Forrest was joking when he said he had done something bad. He claimed that statement he made about Forrest in his earlier interview was a result of him being nervous and he was just trying to say things to get out of the police interview. And that the police had twisted his story. Personally, I think in that original interview back in 1991, I think Maurice was panicking about the gun and he was doing anything he could to avoid gun charges. So he confessed to an illegal joyride that the police knew nothing about and he implicated his best friend in a multiple murder. Maurice isn't what you would call quick on his feet. You know, he's trying to cover his ass with a gun charge, but he just look what he did. But this isn't a guy that makes great decisions. You'll see that as it goes on. But I mean I mean he takes a gun to a mall. What why? So after Maurice is interviewed, Next, Forrest is tracked down, and he's questioned. Now, he can't remember the night of the murders. It was, you know, years before. I mean, it was six years before at this time. He said he was probably at the mall, as that was their usual hangout spot, and that he was probably with Maurice, as he usually loafed around with Maurice. He was given a polygraph at this time, and Forrest passed the polygraph, and he denied having any association with the murders. And his polygraph results showed that he was being truthful when he made the statement that he had nothing to do with the murders. After the police questioned Forrest, the police then make phone calls to both Rob and Mike. And Rob recounts how he had snuck into the late showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show that night. And overall, Paul Johnson felt that Forrest was telling the truth and that Forrest was not involved with the murders. But by the fall of 1998, now, that's about a year later after the second time the four young guys were questioned. Remember their question in 91, 97, and now in the fall of 98, the police are back looking into these four guys again. Now, Maurice, and this is really interesting to me, he agrees to be hypnotized in an effort to recall more about the night, but the hypnosis reveals nothing. And this is important to me. I don't have great faith in hypnosis and what it can reveal, but I do think if I was guilty of a crime... I sure as shit would not go under hypnosis and be questioned about the crime. I think someone willing to undergo hypnosis to reveal more. I think the police should really look at that as a strong indicator that this person has nothing to do with the murders. Because under hypnosis, I mean, if you're really hypnotized, you don't know what the hell you might say. You might say shit that's not even true. I don't know. But I wouldn't take that risk, even as an innocent person. I definitely wouldn't take that risk if I was guilty. By August of 1999, I've kind of eliminated this part. All these times throughout these years, there's been task forces forming and disbanding, forming and disbanding. I kind of highlighted it with um, John Jones being the head from 91 to 97, then Paul Johnson, but there's task forces forming and disbanding all the time with this thing. And it's honestly, it's just not that interesting. By August of 1999, they have formed another task force. And this one focuses on Maurice Pierce and his three friends. A strategy was developed First, the police were going to find the weak link in the group and then apply pressure to that individual to get them to confess and implicate the others. This is what's important. They're not looking for evidence against these men. They're not comparing anything they have at the scene. What they want is a confession. And why do they want a confession? Because they don't have anything else. They don't have other evidence at the scene that ties these guys to the crime. They don't have fingerprints. The DNA, They have right now at this point 1999. It's not where it is today. It can't do too much for matching, or I don't think at this point I don't think it could do anything for eliminating. But I could be incorrect on that. But the the DNA, let's just say it's 99. It's much different than it is now because there is DNA in this case. But they do bring in these guys for lineups, and they're not picked out of lineups. So that's why the focus is confession. Find the weak link. Burrow in on that person because they're really going after Maurice in this, the police. Cause even when they were having one of the meetings on their board, it was like, you know, the the steps to basically convict Maurice Pierce for the murders. Like I can't remember the exact wording of it, but it was basically we're going after Maurice Pierce for this. And what they're going to do is group of four guys, they're going to find the person that's most likely to talk. And how do they find this weak link? They questioned Rob Springsteen's high school girlfriend, Kelly Hannah. Now she had dated Rob for only three weeks When she was a teenager. And this is 1999. So she dated this guy eight years ago. When she was probably around 16 years old. For three weeks. Think of your boyfriends you had when you were 16 years old. And not those ones you had for a whole year. Those ones you had for three weeks. Where he maybe came over to your house twice. And you guys went to the movies a few times. I don't got a lot to say about those dudes. You know I don't have a lot of information about them. But they don't want so much information direct information from her, they want to figure out who of those four guys is the least strong. And Kelly Hanna, she is going to be pivotal in the arrest of Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen, even though she doesn't intend to be. And although she is very pregnant when she is questioned, she's in her third trimester, she holds up very well. She just absolutely refuses to let the police twist her words. She makes this one statement that the day of the murders, Rob had told her that he might swing by to see her that evening. The police repeatedly tried to switch her statement that Rob said he might swing by. The police tried to turn that into that they had plans that night and that Rob had failed to show up on the night of the murders. Kelly consistently tells the police that she had no formal plans to see Rob that night, that it was just a possibility. And considering that Rob drank all the time and smoked a lot of weed. She wouldn't have been surprised if he didn't show up that night. And every time she said that Rob might swing by, the police tried to make it sound like it was they had plans the night the murders occurred and that Rob had missed a scheduled date. And Kelly did everything she could to try to make it clear that that wasn't the case. Kelly, she's stronger, I think, than they thought she was going to be. And you have so much sympathy for Kelly in this because she's an upstanding citizen. She, you know, she's a mom. She's heavily pregnant. This is a guy she dated for three weeks back when she was 16 years old. I doubt she knows a lot about him or his group of friends. She's employed. I think she's a sandwich artist at Subway at this point. But she really keeps it together. And that's when the police really go after her. And she admitted that the four boys stopped by her place in the stolen Nissan Pathfinder. But once she learned that the vehicle was stolen, she wouldn't go for a ride with them. And the police actually believed her. The police had no evidence or statements from anyone else that Kelly had ever been in that stolen Nissan. But this is when the police chose to lie to her. To frighten her. A heavily pregnant young woman that they don't believe had anything to do with the crime but she is being used as a tool. The police want to know which of those four suspects is the weakest, and they think Kelly can point them in that direction, and they'll know who to lean on. The police tell her that they have statements of people that place her inside that stolen Nissan, and they have no such statements. Even the four suspects, the four young men, none of them ever placed Kelly in that vehicle. No one places Kelly in that vehicle, but they're lying to this young woman, And she's thinking she's going to get tangled up in this mess and she's getting scared. And just keep in mind, the police can lie to you when they question you. They do not have to tell you the truth. They can lie about facts. They can misrepresent evidence. That's what they're doing here. They can misrepresent people's statements. They can say, we got another guy in the room who's saying that you're the one that did this crime. The police can lie to you. The United States Supreme Court has said that is okay, but by now... Kelly is crying. Now the cops, they start talking between themselves outside of the room where Kelly can't hear them. And one cop basically says that he doesn't want to be too hard on her. And another cop says, if she fucking starts bleeding in there, that's our ass. No one here is concerned with Kelly's well-being or the health of her unborn baby. The police don't stop interrogating her, but they do turn off the recording device. The rest of the interrogation will not be recorded. If something goes wrong for Kelly medically, They don't want any evidence of it, because that could affect them. There is literally no concern for Kelly just what would happen to them if something happens to her pregnancy. And Kelly, she's strong. She holds up. She tried to keep the police from twisting her statements, and she did a good job. I mean, she does a better job than Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen do for themselves. But she does let the police know that Mike Scott would be the most likely of the guys to give police information about Maurice Pierce. And she was right. But now the police have their target. And I just want to emphasize how much here. Kelly Hannah is a really sympathetic woman. She was a young mom of two that was heavily pregnant at the time she was questioned. The cops pushed her hard, implying that she could be charged with a crime, that she had been lying to them, that she could lose her kids, that because she lied to them, she could be charged with, you know, hindering an investigation and those type of charges. She was frightened. After her interrogation, one of the officers was asked whether they went too far with Kelly and they said, no, Kelly was completely unconnected to the murders, knew nothing about the murders. She was unconnected to any criminal activity that these boys had done. She was in her third trimester of her pregnancy. She was frightened and crying in that interrogation room at that police station. The proper answer to that question about whether or not they went too far with Kelly Hanna, the proper answer is yes, 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 we went too far, and I regret it. Now, Kelly's going to testify during the trial, and just like she does a great job with standing questioning by these police, she does a great job in her court testimony as well. And this is where I'm going to leave you. It's 1999. Eight years after the murders, the police have exhausted most of the leads, and they have chose to focus on four young men that were initially cleared back in 1991. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about Mike Scott, Maurice Pierce, Rob Springsteen, and Forrest Wellburn, and how two of these men end up confessing to murders that they didn't commit.